a very warm welcome from St Paul's Cathedral to the next of our online conversations. Today I will be talking to Rachel Truig, the Bishop of Gloucester, and exploring themes of encountering Jesus from her recently published book. We talk about all sorts of different issues, from encountering Jesus in our own lives to encountering Jesus in others. We even dip into the theme of pantomimes and what they might have to do with our encounters with Jesus, as well as thinking about silence and stillness and its importance in our lives. If you would like to see some of our previous conversations, then please do go to our St Paul's Cathedral YouTube channel, where you will find conversations with the Bishop of London, Sarah Mullally, with Timothy Radcliffe, with John Swinton and with Rowan Williams. Please do also feel free to join us next month for a conversation about race and gender with Rosemary Mallet, Chinny MacDonald and Lucy Winkett. But for today, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Bishop Rachel. Rachel, it's wonderful to have us with you here today. And thank you so much for joining us to talk about your book. Um, and your book is absolutely fascinating because it's all about encountering Jesus. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why you wanted to write it in the first place? Mm. Well, really good to be with you, uh, Paula. The truth is that I didn't set out to write a book. Uh, it was during my sabbatical in 2019 when I had uh, 10 wonderful weeks um, away. And I spent some time of that in Israel, in Tiberias. And during that time, I spent time focusing on the Gospels, reflecting on encounters I'd had with different people and places during my life and began just writing uh, things that came into my mind as I engaged with Jesus' encounters with people in the Gospels. And then it just began to emerge, which is why the book, I think, feels a little bit random in places. I know, yeah, exactly. They kind of sometimes books just kind of grow on their own, don't they? Then And um, somebody says, why did you decide to do it that way? Well, I didn't really. It just kind of went off that way. Absolutely. Um, can you... Um, Tell me, so kind of what's lovely about the book is strung together with the, the encounters with Jesus are your own encounters with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me maybe one of those encounters that is really important to you that has made a, a, the biggest difference maybe in your life? Mm. Well, that's quite a hard question. It really is. Um, I suppose the one that just comes to mind immediately, again, perhaps in a rather random way, is the encounter I talk about when I felt a strong calling to ordination, although at that time women could not be ordained as priests. And it was a very, um, quite a visceral uh, sense really, that I, I think I say that I've been at a pantomime and um, I came back that night to the flat that I lived in at the time in London and was lying in bed and had this really, really strong sense of Christ at my side calling me to put myself forward for ordination. And it was not something I wanted. And it reminded me a lot of that Old Testament scene of Jacob wrestling with God. And I had a real wrestle. I can still remember lying in bed and crying and struggling 
and saying to Christ, I, I do not want to do this. I can serve you much better as a speech and language therapist, um, as a family therapist, and all the time having that sense that um, I was being pursued, really. And then I began to hear a song playing in my head, and it was a song of those days called You Laid Aside Your Majesty, Gave Up Everything for Me. And I really sent Christ saying, I gave up everything for you, and I want you to give up the journey you're on at the moment to go on a different route, and it will not be sacrifice if you say yes. And at that point, I said yes to Christ and felt this amazing sense of peace that I can only describe as mysterious. So I suppose that's one that comes strongly to mind that I write about at the beginning of the book. And um, it's probably a, a mean follow-up question to that one. Um, has the sacrifice been worth, worth it or has it not felt like sacrifice in, in that sense of that encounter? Yes, it, I mean, it hasn't really felt like sacrifice in terms of um, feeling that I continue to become the person I've been created to be. And that's something I am passionate about for all people. That's not to say it's been a bed of roses. It's not to say that I don't really miss my work as a speech and language therapist and the work I was doing training to be a family therapist. But I can see how God has woven all those things into this present chapter. Um, so I don't want to pretend it's been easy. Of course, there are times when we all feel we sacrifice things uh, in our lives, and yet knowing that actually um, becoming the person God's calling me to be is the right path. And I think in my life, apart from my ambition to become a speech and language therapist, I've never had any other ambitions. I've just known at each step of the way what it is that I'm being called to next. Thank you. Um one of the things that really comes to mind is that um, your encounters are vivid um, and they bring to mind a couple of the encounters that I've had in my line that life that are equally vivid. But there are some people either who never have that quality of encounter or who have maybe one or two in the entirety of their life. Um, what would you say to them? Because it's often easy, isn't it, in Christianity to feel as though you're a slightly second-class citizen because you haven't had the best experience and someone's had a much better experience than you have. Yes, and I think it's really important that we don't always focus on those sort of highs, if you like. Um, what I would say is that it's not all about feeling. Um, I'm someone who feels very deeply. In fact, I have to have had to learn over the years for my my heart to dialogue with my head. And it's very important for me to hold on to what I know. And from my reading of scripture and going deeper in prayer, I know that God is with me. Um, I don't always feel that. Often it's because I'm not being attentive to that. But there is that sense, um, I think Psalm 23 comes very strongly to mind for me. You know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, the, of death, you are with me. And sometimes it's simply holding on to the fact that God knows us by name and God is with us and will not let us go. And I don't think we should always be going on on our experiences, on our on our feelings, um, because we're, we're created differently. Some people are much more head people, some people are more heart, some are more gut. Um, and how we we celebrate that and recognize that that's inevitably all going to be part of the way we live our faith and experience 
God in, in different ways. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but there is a sense for me of, of holding fast to mystery in this and, and holding fast to what I know through scripture and through prayer. Yeah, no, absolutely. I entirely agree. And um, I think for me, one of the really striking things is is becoming better at telling those stories. Mm. Um, because I, I, I know that I've, it was only through conversation with wise friends that suddenly I've realised that a thing that I thought was just a thing was in fact an encounter. Because mm. you begin to kind of tease out the words and the language and you begin then to understand something about yourself. Um, how do you reckon we encourage people to get better at telling their stories because it seems to me that at the heart of your book what you're doing is is beautifully telling the story of the gospels and the story of your own encounters um and it's those and it's that kind of meeting together that makes it so powerful um if somebody were wanting to explore that part of their own spirituality how would what advice would you give them where I would start is telling the everyday stories of our of our lives. I mean, we all love stories. I think we're created to be storytellers. And often when we think of telling stories, we try and think of that, that dramatic moment or that thing that we think will be significant to someone else. But actually just telling the story even of our day when we recount what's happened in the day and reflecting on that. I think reflection is really important. We're telling our stories and reflecting on it. And perhaps daring to look at it a new way. So, well, I wonder what was going on there. It's why silence is so important to me. Why noticing is so important to me. So, so one of the things that I've really tried to learn in my life is as I go through each day, is trying to notice, to look, perhaps to look beyond the surface, to listen more deeply, even the sort of just everyday conversations we have with people, um, the everyday things we see, just to tell those stories, to articulate it and begin to ask, where might God be in all of that? Where was God in all of that? And often it's as we, as you says, we tell those stories to one another of our day, other people might begin to gently point out, oh, well, I see God in that, or I see Christ in that. I hear God in that, I hear Christ in that. I see the Holy Spirit being at work in that. So I would just encourage us to begin telling stories. I think people who, who long to encounter Christ and haven't yet encountered Christ. Um, I, particularly in parish ministry, used to always encourage people to say, just, just tell me the story of, of what's been in your day. And that's not all about the things that have been wonderful, where have the painful and sad things be? And let's just reflect together on, on where you might actually be encountering God in all of that. Yeah, and as you're talking, um, brought to mind one of my favourite stories from the Gospels of uh, Mary and Joseph taking the baby Jesus into the temple. And I st it still blows my mind that those two people were able to see a young couple with a tiny baby and say, there is Christ in our midst. I mean, how they managed to is incredible. But I think there's something, and the bit I, the detail I love in it is, you know, with Anna, who's fasting and praying in the temple day and night, she's become a real expert God noticer. You know, she notices God when God appears. So then when God turns up in the form of a tiny baby, she can still recognise. And there seems to be something in that, doesn't there, that is important for us as Christians. Yeah, I, I so agree with that. I'm so glad you said that, because whenever I read that story in the Gospels, and particularly um, around the feast of candlemas when we you know celebrate that time i'm always just amazed that you know, in come this young couple with a baby and somehow simon and anna behold 
this baby as the long-awaited Messiah. I, I think the same, actually, when I reflect on um, the shepherds, uh, you know, running to Bethlehem, um, having had that amazing experience of angels, and then arriving in a very ordinary place and seeing this young couple um, and, and this baby, and yet that sense of worshipping, we get the same with the Magi, um, because in some ways I think it must have been incredibly disappointing, <laughs> and yet there is that recognition and that worshipping, and as, as you say, I think that is that noticing, that, that being attentive to seeing beyond the surface, and I think in our very busy lives, often we go through the day without giving that space to, to noticing deeply and listening deeply and, and being expectant. I think that's the other thing. Uh, each day I pray that I will be expectant to encounter Christ in my day. Um, yes. One of the lovely phrases in your book, in the introduction, is the sacred space of your imagination. I absolutely loved it. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Mm. As a child, I had a really, really vivid imagination. In fact, as I say in my book, I wanted to uh, be um, an author when I grew up. Well, how things change. And I loved using my imagination. And it occurred to me as I grew into being an adult that we're not really encouraged, I don't think, very often as adults to use our imagination. And it was an immense discovery for me through Ignatian spirituality to be encouraged to use my imagination and to, to see it as something really God-given. Um, I would go so far as to say it, it's part of what it means for us to be created in, in God's image, to have the imagination. It's something I see uh, lacking a lot of time in the church, that we're not encouraged to really use our imaginations. And, and I think it is something very God-given. And over the years I've been learning more and more to to value my imagination to almost let my imagination go wild um, I'm also someone who dreams very vividly um, I'm someone who, who remembers my dreams and again been learning to to listen to my dreams and so I I do believe our imagination is sacred and a God-given gift and and I long for us to use our imagination more deeply not least when we read scripture and, uh, and particularly the Gospels. I feel the need to point out that your um, great um, ambition to become an author is in fact true now, <laughs> because we're now talking about your book, which is rather lovely. <laughs> um, I, I, I too, like you, I absolutely love the imagination. And for me, there is something that we miss profoundly in reading scripture when we don't use our imagination. But when I talk to people about imagination, they're often just a little bit anxious because Christianity surely is about truth. And then our imagination is about, um, well, what is that in relation to, to the truth? I've got lots of theories, but I'd be interested to know what you, what you would say. If somebody said to you, yes, but it's not true, is it? What would you say? Well, well actually, uh, Paula, I can give a very um, good example of that, that when I went to theological college, um, at a time when I was very excited about my imagination and my discovery of Ignatian spirituality, um, I think it's probably true to say that most people around me were very nervous about us using our imagination as we approach scripture. And, and I, well, I think I, I held that very strongly, the imagination. And actually, as I look at Christ in the Gospels, Christ was always appealing to people's imaginations. Mm -hmm. 
Christ was always telling stories and walking along with his disciples and saying, you know, look at the flowers of the field, look at the birds of the air, uh, stretching their imaginations to think more more widely. Now, of course, as you say, there'll be people who say that's very dangerous because we need to um, be reliant on on what we know, on our knowledge. And perhaps that sounds contradictory from what I was saying earlier, although I would say my experience of faith is it's full of paradoxes. Um, but I would just want to say, dare to use your imagination, dare to bring your imagination to prayer. I say that to people who, who are very reticent about faith. You say, well, dare to talk to God and and use your imagination and and see what happens. And if if God is truth and if God is God, why are we so scared? And I absolutely agree. And I think the other thing that I would add in is part of the problem of us not talking about using imagination is that we do, but then we pretend that we don't. So therefore we mix what is kind of Christian traditions imagination on top of actually what the Gospels do actually say. Mm -hmm. And for me, one of the really interesting things is once you become more explicit about this bit I've imagined, then you have to go back and read the text more carefully and say, well, actually, is it in the text or is it imagination? And you can begin then to, to recognise what is there and what are the layers of imagination. You know, the best example of it is um, yes. Da Vinci's imagination of what the Last Supper looked like. You know, yes. it's very hard to imagine the Last Supper without a long table and people all sitting on one side of it, um, looking outwards with no women present at all. Um, but that is one person's imagination that has so loaded onto our thinking that it's really hard to get past it. And I think there is something quite interesting about saying, if we think imagination is really important, actually it helps us to understand which bits are there and which bits are imagination. And I think that's such an important point of saying actually everyone is using their imagination, even if they think they are not. So um, when people say to me, and I know have said to you, um, you know, well, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, as if yeah. somehow I'm not. Um, actually, even people's interpretation of Scripture, when they say, well, Scripture says this or Scripture says that, has still been shaped by what people have been taught and um, what they've been brought up to believe or, or how they've encountered faith, and that will have involved their imagination. You know, if I think back to um, even pictures in, in Bibles or pictures in children's Bible stories, they have shaped how we imagine God to be, you know, that, that man in the sky with a white beard and very old. Um, so actually it's about being honest about our imagination, sometimes so we can undo some of that and imagine in a fresh way, but to acknowledge that all of us are coming to this with our imagination. And I'm just reminded then as you were, you were speaking of, um, you know, Paul's uh, famous words in Corinthians about, you know, now I see in a glass darkly. Actually, we're, we're all seeing in different ways at the moment, recognising that actually one day we will see fully. But for now, let's use our imagination and let's be honest about, about that and not be scared of that because we are all, um, we're all incomplete and a bit broken as well as being a bit beautiful. Um, you know, at the moment. And so let's just dare to use our imagination and be honest about that. And um, one thing that I know that you will probably have thought about as well is one of the things that really struck me a few years ago when I was imagining, I was going to do my imagining of the gospel stories. And when I imagined them, there were no women. Yeah. 
Mm. I'd somehow kind of managed to imagine all of these stories with only men in them. And um, I kind of pulled myself up short and went, how fascinating that even though I've done a lot of work on women in the New Testament and um, consider that place to be really important, somehow my imagination was populated in a different kind of way. Mm. Yes, and that's something that's become increasingly important to me over the years and thank you for your writings on that Paula because it certainly encouraged me. Um, a long time ago when I, I did some creative writing which never became a book I imagined um, living the gospel stories as the women uh, with Jesus who so often you know, they are there that some of them are named but they do stay hidden in the shadows and one of the things that I find frustrating in the way that the gospel stories are told um, is that so often the women aren't named. Um, I talk in my book particularly about that wonderful um, encounter of um, the woman with the hemorrhage, of Jairus's daughter, and interestingly Jairus's name, the disciples are named, uh, but we don't always get the women named. And I think that is something to do with the gospel writers being men and the culture of the time. And again, I don't want to be scared in saying that. That doesn't mean that the truth isn't there, but actually the writers of the gospels haven't focused on the women in that way. Um, Rachel, in our conversation so far, and actually in the book as well, you talk about how important silence is for you. Can you tell us why silence is so important? We live in a very noisy world. I'm sure even now as we're speaking, there's noise around us and perhaps most cru crucially, noise within us. I'm very aware of my emotions within me, of the thoughts in my head, um, and that creates quite a lot of noise. And how we pause to pay attention to that it is something that's become very important to me. It's how I learn more about myself. It's how I learn more about myself with God. And going back to what I said earlier about noticing, I find I need that silence to reflect, to be aware of that noise, to ask, well, what might that be about? Often it's in the silence when I look back on something. Um, something comes more into focus, perhaps something I wasn't aware of at the time. Um, one of my favourite hymn verses from that hymn, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, is that verse, drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. And for me, it's often in that place of quiet that my heart and my mind still, and I become much more deeply aware of, of who I am, who I'm becoming. I become much more aware of the places where I've fallen and the places where, which perhaps have been good that I haven't noticed. Um, and often that becomes a place of prayer for me. Um, so yes, silence is very important to me. One of the, I always want to say the most significant thing I did in my life, but I have to quickly add, apart from my wedding, or my husband gets upset, is my 30-day Ignatian silent retreat, which was 30 days of silence in prayer and with the scriptures. And in those 30 days, I only had half an hour every day where I spoke with a spiritual director. And it was the most profound time because outwardly, things were silent and completely stress-free. I you know, wasn't aware of, of anything in that time. I had no task to have to achieve. But inwardly, so much noise within me and I just couldn't escape God. And I spent a lot of time reflecting 
um, being with the scriptures, imagining myself in the scriptures, uh, as Ignatius encourages us to do. And that was the most profound time in my life. What would you say to people who struggle with silence? Because I know that there's for some people who are just... So in my um, um, marriage, my husband's a very strong introvert, totally loves silence. There's nothing more he enjoys than a whole day by himself, all nice and quiet. Um, it may come as a great surprise that I'm the other way. <laughs> <laughs> and my great favourite thing is to be with friends, there'd be lots of noise and the chatter. And one of the things I've often struggled with over the years is the way in which we talk about silence often feels as though what is really being said is you ought to be an introvert. And if you're not an introvert, you're just not good enough. Um, I now know, after many years of wrestling with this, that's not actually what is being said. And I've heard it in a different way. But it, it can come across in the wrong kind of way, can't it? Have you got any thoughts on that? Yes, and really important to say, I think that goes back to something we were saying earlier, which is about learning who we are and who we're becoming. And actually learning that we are all different. Too often we put stresses and pressures on one another because we think people should be like us and actually in the same way that i um might want to encourage people to learn more about silence i also need to learn about noticing from people like you paula who are able to notice more profoundly when you are surrounded by people and with noise so so actually for me i think perhaps the deep thing the important thing is about the noticing, about the listening, and whether we're doing that in silence or whether we're doing it around other people, um, how do we learn from one another? And one of the big things I'm trying to draw out in my book is actually a real sense of thankfulness for all the different people I have encountered in my life who have shaped me and taught me so, so much. And some of those will be introverts and those will be extroverts. So actually, how do we celebrate our differences and learn from one another because actually if we believe and i do believe we're all created in the image of god then we are diminished if we don't see god in one another and learn from one another and um i absolutely agree and one of the things i'm discovering as an extrovert is that yeah. s silence yeah. isn't just about not speaking it's about stillness absolutely. um my favorite um translation of that bit you know the um dear lord and father of mankind that you quoted um in the hebrew um a literal translation is the sound of sheer silence and i think there's something kind of beautiful in that that actually um silence is about an experience it's about a quality of being rather mm. than whether you're talking or not um, and i think in a way that's what you're talking about here isn't it yeah, I so agree, because actually we can be not talking, but have all sorts of noise going on within us, which is deeply unhelpful. Um, and actually, equally, we can be with a group of people. I can think of plenty of times, as you were speaking, it reminded me of plenty of times when actually in a noise, uh, often when I'm in a meeting and people are talking, I, I will try to go to that still place within me to be listening I might even be talking at the same time, but there's a sense of trying to um, use the sort of jargon of centering ourselves, but that sense of actually trying to go to that still place within me so I can really hear what is going on in this meeting, what is going on in this social gathering. Um, so absolutely, it, it's much more about that still centre rather than simply not talking. 
One of the really lovely themes that runs through the book that I really enjoyed um, is pantomimes. <laughs> pantomimes feature all the way through. Um, why are they so important to you, do you think? And what might we learn from it? I mean, I, I, mean, I love a pantomime as well, so that's why I resonated so strongly with it. Well, again, it was something that just as I was writing, I thought, oh, my word, pantomimes keep cropping <laughs> up here in these stories. Um, I do love a good pantomime. Um, one of the things I love in a pantomime is that sense of humour, being with other people. Um, a pantomime, I don't think, probably is very funny if you're not surrounded with other people in watching. I don't want a pantomime would be just online if you're watching it yourself. There's that sense of doing something together with other people. And again, in the same way I've talked about imagination being God-given, I think our sense of humour is really God-given. Um, I need to be able to laugh with people as well as cry with people. The other thing I love about pantomimes is that there is a sense in which the light is always stronger than the darkness. There's always the baddie in the pantomime, isn't there? And there's the goodie and there's love at the heart of it. And love always wins and the baddie always loses. And I think that's deeply theological. And I talk in my book about um, pantomimes uh, featuring very strongly in the church where I did my curacy in St George's Tufnell Park and, and Simon Park who was my training incumbent, uh, was a great writer of pantomimes. And I learned very quickly how deeply theological they were. And um, I often will quote pantomimes when I'm talking to those about to be ordained as well, often the Wizard of Oz, which I, I, I write about. So um, yes, let's hear it for our pantomimes and let's <laughs> celebrate them as Christians. Totally with you, I think that's a lovely idea. Um, one of the themes, again, that comes through the book is is that of, as you've said, being with people and that kind of deep encounter. And I think one of the really striking things about the society in which we live, and this was even before lockdown, is what people are calling the epidemic of loneliness. You know, the number of people who speak of profound isolation and loneliness. And that was before the lockdown, I mean, and now it's much, much worse. What reflections do you have about that importance of encounter and what the encounter needs to have in it for it? Because again, you can feel very lonely in a big crowd, can't you? It's not necessarily about there being people there, but, but what is it, do you think, that causes such great loneliness and what can counteract it? Mm. And so true that you can feel as lonely in a crowd uh, as when you're on your own. And sometimes it makes that more poignant. Um, for me, at the heart of who God is, is relationship. More and more as I go on through life, I, I recognise that being created in the image of God is about being able to live in relationship with God, uh, with one another, with the whole of creation. Uh, it's no surprise, is it, that um, that great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, to love our neighbour as ourself. Um, and I would take... Um, that love of all creation being part of that. And so for me, it's how we live honesty in those relationships and um, they're not perfect. So for me, I can feel lonely if I'm with other people and not feeling able to really express who I am or being able to express my pain um, as well as my joy, being able to express my fears, my vulnerabilities. And during this time of pandemic, in many ways, although people have been um, more isolated and away from one another, there have also been opportunities for people to be able to talk about their, 
their fears and their anxieties. Uh, and yet for others, not feeling able to do that, not having the people around them to be able to do that. Um, so there's something in all of this for me about how people feel included, how people feel excluded. So I want to really encourage openness in our relationships. And of course, if you don't feel that you have someone with whom you can be open and vulnerable um, to tell your story, going back to that, that whole issue of storytelling, then I think that's very isolating and, and very lonely. Um, we often say to people, don't we, oh, how are you? And we expect that response, oh, I'm fine. How do we ask one another the questions of, again, tell me something of your story? Um, even when we meet someone for the first time, just tell me something of your story, which I think can open up a much deeper relationship rather than just how are you? Absolutely, because it's um, the trouble with the how are you is um, either you never answer or you do answer and realise that they really didn't want to know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, halfway yes. through, you could suddenly go, oh, no, no, you really didn't want to know. Um, and so asking the kind of those more generative questions, expansive questions are, are much more helpful, I think, aren't they? Because it signals that you do genuinely want to know and you're yes. interested in them. Now, one of the things that is intriguing about your own story is um, that your work before you were ordained was as a speech and family therapist. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about it? Because it is so interesting. And do you mm. think that it's informed the way that you minister? Um, and in what, if so, in what ways has it informed the ways that you minister? Yes, so I um, became a speech and language therapist. I was training, doing some family therapy training um, uh, before I became ordained and in fact finished my certificate uh, uh, whilst I was a curate, but then never went on to practice as a family therapist. And as I look back now, and as I said, that was my only ambition from about the age of 14 or 15 to become a speech and language therapist, I realise how the characteristics that God had put in me were about that those things about relating, about relationship, about connecting. And, and I look back now and realise those were so important in my desire to become a speech and language therapist and wanting people to be able to relate and communicate. Um, now, when I read those early words at the beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the word. And I, I realize how important communication is at the heart of who God is. So, so in my work as a paediatric speech and language therapist, it was about enabling children to communicate, whether through words or in other ways, if they had disabilities, being able to express themselves, and then being able to, um, to, to enable families and systems of people, groups of people, communities, to be able to relate to one another, which is why I developed this great interest in family therapy, because I realized just working with individuals to help them communicate was not enough. It's about what it means to live in relationship with others. And when I had that wrestling experience with God, when I was called to ordination and saying to, to God, you know, I can serve you much better as a speech and language therapist, a family therapist, and a very wise person saying to me, you will discover those same things um, as an ordained person. I've discovered that to be true. The way I look at the community of the church um, is as a system of relationships, as a, 
as a family, although I do struggle a little bit with the use of the word family with the church, but perhaps it's another subject, um, but actually that sense of community, what it means for us to relate to one another with those people we like and those people we find difficult. And how do we learn to communicate better? And how do we enable all people to have a voice? That's very important for me, that all people should have a voice. Um, and so yes, it has very much informed my ministry. Do you know that reminds me of some, my youngest daughter had hearing problems for a while and uh, so went first to a speech therapist um, and then also went to a listening therapist and I was absolutely fascinated by the listening therapist so it wasn't a hear it wasn't an audiology um, appointment mm. it was the recognition that she'd learnt how not to listen because of her hearing problems yeah. and therefore the listening therapist helped her to listen and I sat there in the sessions going we need this in the church so much <laughs> because it was very simple things about paying attention about when you're attention um, wanders coming back and focusing on the people again um, trying to listen to what people are not saying as well as what they are saying it was absolutely fascinating and um, I, I, um, I often have these thoughts that um, you know in another life I would train to be something else completely and um, I'm quite fancy being a listening therapist <laughs> but we love you doing what you do for <laughs> yes and I think it's it, it's the same I'd say with family therapy when I started doing family therapy training I thought gosh all of us should have this um, because actually we're learning, again, to listen to one another, to hear different perspectives. Um, I talk a lot about different perspectives. Again, it's about, you know, we can think we've got the monopoly on the truth. But how do we stand in one another's shoes and listen deeply, even if we disagree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, another strand, again, that runs through the book is um, the way in which Jesus encounters marginalised people. Again, that's kind of a really important feature of your stories. Um, what, how, how important, what, why is that so important, do you think, to Jesus? And where do we need to pay attention today to the marginalised people? How does that kind of play out in the life of the church? For me, it begins with where we place importance. Um, I think one of the things that Jesus did when he was on earth was really challenge people's um, views and perspectives again on, on who and what is important. And again, if we really truly believe that every person is creating the image of God, then this is about every person being able again to become the person they've been created to be and being enabled to flourish. Um, that can sound so trite and inevitably because of the brokenness of our world, and our own brokenness, um, not everyone is going to be able to be to flourish as I would want them to. And yet what we see again and again in the Gospels is Jesus in a very provocative way going to the tax collectors, um, the prostitutes, those with leprosy, um, inviting them to sit and eat with him, focusing on them. And very in a very audacious way that provoked anger and frustration and and for me, I often use that image of, of the table. Now, who's invited to the table? Who is not at the table? Um, and actually, I have to challenge myself. Um, who are those who are being excluded, who are being um, overlooked? So today, I'm sitting talking to you in the House of Lords, and there are many people in here who, who consider themselves important. There are many, many people in here today who are standing in every co corridor, 
um, as security people. There are people walking up and down the corridors, cleaning, um, dusting. And, and I had to challenge myself to say, actually, I want to be talking to those people and asking them a bit about their story how their day is going, because it's so easy not to notice people. Yeah. And actually during this pandemic, hasn't it been interesting that um, we've had Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Do Matter. We've seen all the outpouring of emotion around uh, the murder of Sarah Everard. And actually violence against women and girls has become more into the fore. Um, many other things too. And I think that's been challenging us about what sort of shape do we want our world to be? Um, we should always be asking that question, but perhaps we're particularly asking that question as we emerge into the next season. And I think the challenge is, who are we not noticing? When I was in South Africa in 1994, doing a placement there leading up to the first um, democratic elections, uh, the church where I was doing my placement, um, a church called St. Saviour's, um, were learning about uh, voting and, and perhaps how life was going to look after the elections. And I remember being told that then still in the church congregation, on the whole, the black people sat around the edges and the, the white privileged people sat in the center and those who referred to as colored um, sort of sat in between. And I remember being really angry and thinking, how can't people see this? And then immediately saying to myself, what do I not see now that in many years time, I will be horrified about? And, and I still ask myself that, who is it that I'm not seeing? Who am I excluding now? that in years to come, I will look back with great shame. Uh, and I think that's what Jesus was always provoking people about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing I've noticed over the years is that it's one thing to invite people to the table. It's another thing to shape the conversation in such ways they can genuinely join in. Because mm. I've mm. often seen kind of, um, and I've in fact been, um, not quite the victim, but whatever the, the right language is, I have received um, the invitation. They needed a laywoman, so they went, oh, she'll do, she can come. Um, yeah. But actually, the conversation was so tightly bound by the established conversation, you couldn't get a word in edgeways. So I was at the table, but I couldn't join the conversation. And yeah. the question I'm often um, kind of bowling myself is, well, how do we need to change the conversation so that when people do are able to be at the table, actually they can take a proper part of the conversation. And how, how do people shape the conversation? Yeah. Again, one thing um, I learned a lot in my family therapy uh, training was about how when people join a family, it's particularly true when families adopt a child, um, how does that child come into that family and shape that family? Um, because so often families want to create such a safe environment um, for particularly for a child who's been adopted that actually that child is allowed less creativity than they might have if they had been born into that family where naturally the family automatically changes often in the chaos of that child being born into the family. And again, it's something I ask myself about how does someone, as soon as they say walk through the doors of a church building, uh, when we used to do those sorts of things, and we are again now. But how does someone immediately change that community? Because they should. And if they're not, 
we have questions to ask ourselves. So often don't, and um, we have those signs outside our churches, which I confess I loathe, which say, um, you are welcome to come and join us, which implies that actually you come and then you be like the group that's already, um, rather than a really creative, bold, dynamic you, which I think is the one that Jesus showed us on earth, is come in, be welcome. As soon as you walk through that door, you are us and you will change us, um, which I think is really important. So how do we not, we often talk, don't we, about giving people a voice or speaking up on behalf of the voiceless. Well, actually, it's not about how I speak on behalf of the voiceless. It's about how do I live in a way that will enable someone to be able to speak for themselves? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of change, I'm going to bowl you a final mean question. Often um, when you're thinking about a book, um, you ask somebody, um, you know, um, what, what do they hope somebody else will get out of it? But I'm going to ask you the kind of the harder version of that, which is um, what did you get out of it? Um, because I find that when you write a book, um, you, you learn all sorts of unexpected things that you never thought you were going to when you start. Um, what kind of comes away from the writing of your book um, that sticks with you today? That's a lovely question. Well, as I said at the beginning, um, it was all rather random in its writing. So in many ways, I was quite surprised at what did come to mind as I entered into the gospel stories. And I suspect if I wrote it again, um, there might be different stories. So I think one of the surprises to me was the stories it did bring to mind from my own life. One of the big things I got from it was recognising more deeply all the people who have shaped my life. And I say in the final chapter, I didn't set out to sort of pay tribute to all those who've shaped me in life. I think one of the saddnesses was that there are many people I haven't mentioned um, in my book. And yet recognizing really that, Bruce sounds a bit trite, but every encounter we have every day shapes us. And, and that was something that I really did get out of the book in in writing it and being so thankful for so many people in my life the ones who i haven't agreed with the ones i found quite challenging as well as the ones um who are deep close friends and family so um yes and of course it was very strange writing a book before pandemic and then it being delayed it's publishing being delayed and so then adding a little bit more to, for it to make sense, I was writing a book about encounters rather strange in pandemic. And, and actually realizing how strongly I loathe that phrase, social distancing, which I refuse to use. Because actually in writing about encounters, recognizing that we're being called to socially draw closer together in our differences and in our agreements. Physically distance, yes, but socially going towards one another. Rachel, thank you so much. It's been such a treat chatting with you um, just now. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you.